Hey, it's Michael Waits. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Michael? I am super. Do you want to give the audience a little bit of a personal introduction just for context? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I am Dipendra and uh, I'm originally from Nepal, but I've been in Thailand for the past uh, four or five years. Uh, I work as a lecturer at uh, Thammasat University. Um, apart from teaching uh, on, on a day-to-day basis, I have a position at, as the assistant dean for academic affairs and student affairs at the School of Global Studies. Uh, and not only that, I am also a PhD student at uh, NIDA, uh, where I'm writing my dissertation. So so you, you said you've been in Thailand for about five years, coming from Nepal, right? Why did you come to Thailand to do your studies as opposed to going to any other place in the world? Uh, there's an interesting story. Uh, so right uh, right before coming to Thailand, I was actually at University of Washington in Seattle. Interesting. Um, uh, so I was there for a month-long fellowship that was funded by State Department. And uh, when I was returning back to Nepal, I was thinking that I would definitely go back to a grad school in the U.S. Uh, but once I went back to Nepal and I had a chat in my family that I wanted to go to U.S., but and that was the same time when, uh, so I used to run a youth-led organization in Nepal during that time, and my term was about to come to an end. So I had one week, uh, one week of time, uh, or I was running on my last uh, week as the president in the organization. So, you know, I thought if I go to a grad school in the U.S., I would have to prepare for a GRE, give English language test, and so on. Uh, so I had all, and I thought, and Thai, you know, honestly to tell you, Thai universities were the first universities to give me admission. That's why I landed in Thailand. So you were running your own student organization. Is this the NGO that you were running? Uh, yeah. So it is, it is the same youth-led organization. Can you tell me a little bit more about the purpose of that organization and what it was actually doing? Um, yeah, so um, we started this as a platform for young people. So um, when I when I along with my friends started this organization, I was really young. I was just completing my high school. Um, so in that sense, uh, everywhere you look for opportunities, people would ask for experience. So we decided why not we create our own organization and create a platform for people like ourselves so that they can bring in their ideas and uh, experiment uh, their ideas and and get a team around that so i think that's how we started initially when we started this organization uh, however as time moved i think we we jumped into some broader uh, uh, we we picked up on a few other uh, issues especially uh, relating to young people and their participation in uh, policy making process so uh, you know over the probably next three four years in my time in that organization i worked ex- extensively around those areas especially having meaningful participation of young people in the policy making level in the country in the country what was the what was the growth like for that organization itself in other words you say it started amongst friends but towards the end when you were leaving how many people did it have in it and what was its impact um I think, uh, you know, when we started, uh, we definitely started with five people and, and that was all and none of wow. uh, none of us uh, were really um, full time working in that organization. There were only actually two of my friends who were ag- actually working in the organization full time. 
um, again, that was uh, supporting themselves. Organization was not supporting them. So there was a point, uh, you know, after a year and a half when we were deciding to close down this organization because uh, it was financially uh, kind of stressful for us because we we had been, you know, instead of organization support us to survive, we were helping the organization to survive for the first uh, year and a half. So in that sense, that's how we started really. But by the time I was leaving, I think, um, you know, I uh, we were, uh, in terms of number of people who were working there full-time, we had a little over 10 staffs uh, that were working full-time. And uh, we had a big community, um, people affiliated with the organization probably uh, was a little more than 100 in terms of uh, members, active members and people who would really engage with the organization. But in terms of yearly reach, how many people we were, uh, how many young people we were reaching out every year uh, through our programs, it was uh, over 5,000 every year. So that that was more or less uh, the growth of the organization uh, when we were living. And uh, financially, if financial uh, matrices are, are a measure to uh, um, gauge how well organization uh, grew, I think we started with negative budget uh, for the first year and a half. We were in negative budget, uh, but but by the time I was leaving, uh, I I think uh, our annual turnover was getting a little over uh, four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand dollars a year. Of what? Just income into the organization, or was that just capital that you raised every year so that you could run that organization? Uh, the capital that we raised so that we can run the organization. Four hundred. So you went from basically being in a negative capital perspective to having four hundred thousand or five hundred thousand dollars of capital raised every year. That's wildly. Uh, that's wildly impressive. And all that money came internally from inside the country. Uh, interestingly, most of the funding was from outside the country. Okay, that's even more interesting. So Nepal, we talked about this offline a little bit. It's a very interesting country, right? And I think yeah. if I asked most people in the world what the population was, I don't think that they would know. It's not a small country. 29 million people or 30 million people. It's not small. There are a lot of people living yeah. in Nepal. But this is interesting. So you created essentially a, an NGO, a non-government organization. It's non-profit. You grew it from zero to 100 people, impacting the lives of 5,000 people or more a year, and then also raised every year about 400000 or $500,000 a year to do that. That's very impressive, I think. Uh, yeah, you know, let me tell you, when people think of Nepal, people have uh, a Mount Everest and all the mountains in their head. And, you know, a lot of time I, I, I joke around with people saying, like, see, Nepal not only has, you know, mountains... We also have mountain of NGOs and foreign aid in the country. So that's, uh, you know, the, you know I, I, I often say that in terms of, if you look at uh, how uh, these non-governmental organizations and foreign aid has uh, come into the country over the just past 10 years, uh, it's, it's uh, amazingly surprising. Uh, and, and the number of uh, NGOs per, you know, if you look at NGOs per capita, um, it's, it's one of the highest in South Asia, actually. I didn't realize that. So what is your experience and what did you learn basically from building that organization from nothing with a couple of friends to something that is self-sustaining? Um, and also about the aid. Aid itself is this very specific program, right? The AID. Yeah. Was that American International Development? Do I have that right? And what, is, what did you learn about using that as an organization as well if you interacted with them a lot? You know, I think, you know, uh, it's it's very interesting question uh, in terms of what I learned. Probably, you know, before this organization, I knew nothing. Uh, 
So what I really think I learned is that everything that I have learned today mostly comes from uh, my time in the organization in terms of management, leadership, uh, even accounting, coding, and, and anything. You know, we, we had to build our own website from scratch. That means I had to learn to do that myself within that first year so that we don't have to pay anything. So these are just some anecdotal <laughs> experience of what I learned being in the organization. I would say that uh, virtually everything, all the professional skills that I have gathered, uh, they have some foundation uh, in the organization. And most of these were self-acquired. I think I, I mean, I was able to acquire all these skills when I was uh, still running the organization. So when we started the organization, I was not leading the organization directly. So I, I came into the leadership position of the organization only since uh, 2012. So for the first three years, uh, I was one of the leaders in the organization, but again, not leading the day-to-day -day operation um, in that sense. So I was. I was still, um, you know, part of the founding, co-founding team. I would still work very actively, uh, involved in fundraising. So my first three years were actually my my title called me treasurer. Uh, so I was a I was a person who would manage accounts of a company that that had no money. So that's how <laughs> I started. Uh, and then uh, eventually I developed myself into that position as someone who would raise money in that organization and manage that money. So that's how um, you know my first three years went on. So I think my first three years were really uh, looking into the financial aspect of the organization and uh, looking more around uh, you know building policies uh, to run the organization, human resource um, uh, guidelines for the organization. So it was more of internally managing funds and people in the organization. And by that time, I think, you know, these were my first three years, but I think later two years were directly on the leadership position of the organization as the president of the board and also leading the day-to-day -day operation of the organization. And I think this was the period of time probably where I learned most. Uh, I was the youngest in the, um, I was one of the youngest to be uh, the organizational president. So I had much more senior people in my board and also plus people were working. So I had this uh, challenge of man, you know, working with people who had more experience than me and, and so on. So I think I, I, I developed quite a lot of skills uh, in, in, in the later two years uh, in the organization. What, what, just so I know, what's the name of the, this NGO that you founded? Oh, it is called Yuva, Y-U-W-A. Uh, so Yuva basically is a Nepali word meaning youth. So it's a generic word. Um, a lot of time people actually say, you know, how come we were able to register this generic name for the organization? So <laughs> you, you, you'll, you. find, you'll find another 40 organizations that will have some uh, prefix or suffix uh, in front of that word in Nepal right now, though. And just before we switch topics, what is the impact, right? So if you have 5,000 people interacting every year with this, you've raised some money, what are you trying to accomplish? It gives to teach students or to teach young people, the youth, the UA. What are you trying to teach them? Uh, so, as I said at the beginning, uh, we started this organization as a platform for young people to come and experiment with their ideas. So one of the things that we try to uh, stick, um, I mean, I mean, we are still, uh, you know, I think the organization still does, is one of the core uh, mission of the organization is to really be that uh, platform where young people can really come up with their ideas and we can, uh, we can grow uh, with uh, those ideas. Uh, eventually, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, being, being uh, when you start as NGO, uh, there is always this pressure of what you want to do versus 
you know, what you have to do for survival. Uh, so this is what we really wanted to do and what we are doing. But again, uh, I think what we were also indirectly uh, doing at the same time is also, now, you know, all the resources is not here on what you really want to do. Uh, it's, it's, it's not really attractive for donors or, or people who are interested to fund on that, that part. Or at least it was not the case when we started in 2000. Uh, things are changing now, but you know. Then on the other side, uh, we had to do, um, or we had to engage uh, uh, more at the policy level um, through the organization. So, if you ask me, what was the impact? I think you know, I would say that uh, this organization started more as a platform for young people. So, if you look at what we call ourselves graduates right now, one of the biggest impact of the organization is really that just in the past four years, this is again. I think I I, I should have mentioned this earlier. One of the core, uh, um, you know, one of the core strength of the organization is that its uh, organizational leaders actually change every two years. And by the time you are 29, you already need to be out of the organization. So because of that, it, it is like a living, uh, you know, it's like a practical leadership school where you, you come and manage an organization for two years. Uh, you know, try to pursue the vision that the organization has. And after two years, you are actually out of the organization. So because of that, uh, quite a number of what we call these days, we have quite a number of graduates of, of the organization who are doing really well uh, in their own field. One probably impact in terms of, uh, you know, those people who are engaged in the organization is that. But apart from that, I think we had some significant uh, uh, impact on a few other things. One is really uh, when we were working actively uh, with government of Nepal to change uh, curriculum uh, for uh, curriculum especially related to sexual reproductive health rights. So what was being taught in the school and what is being taught now? So it is much more open to uh, to uh, you know in in the curriculum there was never you know it was it wasn't talked about even a simple topic like menstruation or you know uh, you know the the whole concept of uh, third gender and stuff like this. They are not in the curriculum. So if a kid was growing, going through school and if they had not studied all these things, they would not know about it. So I think one of, uh, one of the biggest impact for us since we are a policy advocacy organization is that we are able to change some of these things. We are able to work with the government of Nepal closely to change some of these things. That's awesome. That, that's really what I wanted to know. I like the fact that there's a, there's a policy implication to it and that, frankly, that, that policy implication is progressive in the sense that you're trying to help kids learn something that wasn't necessarily part of the curriculum and now is and that that part of the curriculum that you're changing ends up being quite progressive and that's really cool yeah so let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now and you know what inspired you really to be so involved in sort of large data sets and how you use data to teach your students what they should do with it and maybe some of the stuff that they've done that's been interesting to you in the data front as well Interestingly, um, you know, I, I was always fascinated by graphics, charts, and so on. And I, I think I I started learning all these things because of out of my fascination uh, on this. Um, and especially, I recently published a paper where I was looking at uh, the records of 47,000 uh, NGOs of Nepal and where they go. Do they really target poor people and so on? Um, so, you know, during all this uh, time and now, uh, as I teach some of these skills to my students. Uh, you know, 
it really fascinates me. Now my students actually can, you know, what I really feel proud today is when someone talks about development, when someone talks about all these uh, issues like poverty, inequality, and other things, my students now have the capacity actually to download the data set from World Bank or UNDP or this kind of organizations, uh, public cool. data sets, and they can actually, uh, you know, and these are undergraduate kids, and they can, uh, you know, right in front of your eyes, within 10 minutes, they'll be able to tell the, um, you know, how, con you know, countries have progressed or regressed over the years, uh, what was the impact of political changes that happened in those countries and so on. So I think, you know, these are some of the interesting things. You know, one thing that I remember particularly is uh, this uh, visualization that uh, some of my students created uh, earlier last week. Uh, so this is a this is a simple dashboard of uh, the, the development, especially the economic growth of Bhutan and the political changes. So what they did was they, 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 they brought two information. They looked at the political history of the country and they're, they're, they're putting it together with the economic development of the country. So, you know, and how these two things were interacting. So that was one particular case. And then in another case, my students were looking at the role, you know, how internal conflict and economic development uh, went on. So the, now I feel like, you know, um, I was only learning these skills um, and, and putting them you know, to my use, but I feel, I feel much happier now that uh, some of my students have uh, learned uh, some of these skills. I'm not sure if I answered this question. You uh, did. You, know, you, you did really nicely, actually. And what other kinds of tools are they using, right? So when they create the dashboard or they're manipulating this data or when they're downloading it, what other kind of tools are they using to do this analysis? I am um, right now, since um, they're only focused on descriptive um, part of the data, describing the data, so I teach them a tool called Tableau in the classroom. Uh, so it's a, it's a data visualization tool mostly used in the... Uh, Tableau, yeah. Um, yeah, so mostly, mostly used in the private sector, but I'm asking them to look at... Uh, development. I'm asking them to look into inequality. I'm asking them to look into, uh, you know, some of the social uh, elements. And I did show them how they can do a sentiment analysis of, uh, from Twitter using uh, Tableau and so on. But but I think they they uh, their assignments were more on development side, and much of their output looks <laughs> on that that side. And are most of your students international students, or are they Thai students as well? Uh, actually, most of my students are Thai. Uh, the classroom that I teach right now, it's 90% Thai and 10% international. Uh, uh, but the school where I work right now, um, the newest batch has one third of its international, uh, one, third, one third of its students is international students. Uh, but it's a predominantly uh, Thai students. What's the response you're getting from the kids when you're teaching them about analyzing large data sets, but also in the context of, I mean, you said Bhutan, right? So you're trying to put this in the context of governments and sort of governmental data. Do you feel like you're introducing them to things that they haven't been introduced to yet? And if you are, like, what is their response been? Um, you know, one thing that uh, that my students uh, say is that I introduced them uh, this in year four. So they have six months before they graduate. They just feel that this course should go to belong to second year or first year so that they, they, they had more time to practice this. Uh, when They, they want to know other. more. That's that's really good, though, right? Yeah. So so in that sense, one one is that another thing is, you know, uh, I had some uh, students walk into my office uh, bringing their computer and they're asking me questions on how they could do that. So, and I asked them if this was useful. Uh, and I feel like uh, they say that they have they have heard about this kind of tools. They've heard so much about big data and and uh, and other things. But 
uh, they had no idea where to begin uh, on on this kind of things. So one thing that uh, that I that my students are telling me is that um, uh, this kind of hands-on um, uh, classrooms are much. Uh, I mean, they they value this kind of hands-on. Um, um, experience than than uh, my uh, other session. So this is just one third of the course that I teach. So rest of my course is very theoretical in nature, and I think my students value much more that part of the course than than the part that I'm teaching right now. Yeah, look, I think there's a secular change taking place in the world, particularly as it focuses on things like sustainability. You mentioned the UNDP earlier, um, and we should probably just define what that is for people. That's the United Nations Development Program, right? Just so people who may not be so familiar with it understand. But also this concept of social innovation and sustainability, I think, is really coming to the fore. Do you want to explain your um, involvement there as well? And you're also creating a course around this too, no? Uh, yeah. So I think, um, you know, this is, this is uh, if, we, if we look at, uh, you know, since 2015, the whole, uh, the the governments of the world have agreed to sustainable development goals and uh, they have committed to these uh, goals that all the countries would like to achieve uh, by 2030. Uh, but again, it's not only about achieving uh, these goals. Uh, if, if we look at, uh, you know, what is happening to uh, around us, um, there is a big movement for sustainability, you know, um, especially our existing uh, socio-political system. Um, and and uh, our, our governance so far has not been able to deliver the way they should have delivered. So there is more demand for uh, innovation in, in the social sector and, and sustaining this. Social innovation. Let's do that first. How would you define that for people that may not understand what it means? Uh, well, to me, social innovation is, is, is uh, really easy. Um, so who is at the core of whatever you are trying to do new or so innovation is very simple. So let me probably start from innovation. So innovation is, you know, uh, it's either you are building on something that already existed or you are bringing it to a new context. Maybe you didn't have that particular product or service in, in, a, in that particular context. Now, what we do when we look into social innovation is, now, are we keeping our societies, are we keeping people at the core of, uh, you know, whatever we do when we try to bring in a new product or when we try to bring uh, some intervention in a new context? So are we keeping uh, society, are we keeping uh, uh, people at the center or not? So that is, that is fundamentally what, to me, what social innovation is. Uh, so, if, uh, so, so now when we talk about corporations, uh, well, you know, so so far um, we have heard of so much about externalities and so on. Now uh, we have also heard about corporate social responsibility and uh, so on. But the movement is, uh, you know, the demand from the society in general is much more. Expectation is much more from corporations, for example. Now, how do we make sure that uh, you know these concepts of people, community, actually reflect on the core business of what corporations do? Uh, so that's that's one element when we look at uh, you know how corporations, for example, can engage in social innovation or how can they really uh, you know do better on things that they're doing. So so probably I'll I'll, I'll keep it to very you know maybe a, a, this is a this is a bit elaborative answer. No, but, it's uh, no, it's not. I want it to be as elaborative as possible because I'm really interested in. If you're developing this coursework, what like what are the types of courses that the students will take, and will you be teaching them, or who are some of the interesting people that will be teaching them? And I presume this is at Thomasat, yeah. This, is that where that's going to be done, or no? 
Uh, yeah, so this is going to be a Tapratan uh, campus uh, in the city, um, right next to Grand Palace. Uh, so two of our classes going to be. So this is a weekend long program. So let me tell, take, talk briefly about this program. So this is a uh, this is a one year program. We are our aim is to start in January uh, in 2019, and our plan is to finish it by uh, December. And this is mostly targeted for working professionals. Uh, so this will be two full days of classroom on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. Uh, and um, uh, most likely one weekday evening class. So every um, so, so every weekend for a year, and let's just say like every Wednesday night. I, I don't know what the weekday night is, but something like that. Yeah. So cool. six to nine p.m. on on a Wednesday. So 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 this is for more for working professionals, and 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 the the program will finish within a year, uh, and it's in the city. Got it. And what's the goal of that? So there, what what exactly will they be taught, and what's the goal for that? And whether is it practical? Is it theoretical? You said you did teach some theoretical stuff, but that the practical class was really popular. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is uh, this is very much a hands-on um, a course. And since we are targeting a working professional, one of the ambition of this course is you know towards the end of the course, uh, you know a big chunk of the course is what we call independent study. Uh, or, or a, a thesis. So traditional thesis would be you, you had to go on the field and do a research. But what we are saying this time is bring a problem from your own organization that relates to issue of sustainability or innovation uh, within the organization. So we are, we are keeping it very broad in the sense, you know, it could be innovative in the sense you, you want to function better and you want innovation around your human resource system in the organization, bring the issue and come to classroom. Um, you, you know, maybe someone wants to work on social impact assessment of the business. Uh, so come that issue and uh, come to classroom. So, so this this will be this will be a non-traditional course in the sense that there will not only be one lecturer in the classroom at a time, but uh, it will be really uh, it, it, it's going to be much more around uh, problem centered and. And what uh, what our students really uh, want to solve? We do have a few um, in terms of uh, course outline and so on. We have we have some foundational courses on you know like introduction to global systems, for example, or uh, the concept of what is disruptive innovation. Um, you know how do you manage uh, projects and so on. So we have some uh, some uh, courses like that, but much of uh, the subject matter is really. Um, um, I think it's 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 very practical course. So it sounds like this is in a way it's like guided research, right? If it's for working professionals or people that already have jobs, they come to you. They say, "I want to do almost like a little bit of guided research." Here's a problem that I'm experiencing inside of my corporation. We want to be more socially innovative um, focused, and we want to focus on sustainability. And they spend a year learning about how to do that, and then presumably. In the middle of the course, they go they, they go back to their work and they try to implement some of this stuff. And by the end, do they end up with a degree as well, which then they can use to, you know, get promoted and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. That, that I think you summarized it very properly. Okay, I mean that sounds like, and this is new. This is this whole course is new, and this is something that you're spearheading. This is part of your passion for social innovation, right? Uh, yeah, so right now I've, I've taken the responsibility to start this program and, and um, really, um, you know, uh, start this program in, in January. So that's what I'm, I'm looking at right now. And it goes back to, you know, um, back to, again, uh, as you said, it's, it's really my passion that I'm, I'm deeply, uh, I, I deeply believe that 
uh, we we need some some sort of uh, change on on wh whatever it is happening around us and i think uh, this is one way we could we could um, I, as an individual i think i could contribute and are you in the process right now of getting students do you have enough students already for your january 19 launch and, and is this something you'll do after 19 as well uh, yeah, so this is actually an MA program. So you actually get a yeah, so a master's program. Uh, right now, actually, we, we are also actually exploring. Right now, we are we are almost there in terms of finalizing this as a dual degree. So a student will also have an option. For example, if they would like to get an MBA uh, in addition to uh, our MA in social innovation and sustainability, so a student can actually uh, you know take, for example, nine courses uh, with us and take seven courses uh, online or in person uh, through this uh, institution in uh, Switzerland. So we are talking with a Swiss uh, uh, school called Sustainability Management School, uh, which uh, we share the same vision and they're running an MBA program. So we are actually collaborating for a dual degree as well. So if students are really interested and they want to get an MBA program, uh, you know, they want to get an MBA degree, uh, plus they want to get a degree uh, in social innovation, uh, this is a perfect mix. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea and a great mixture. I like this concept of a dual degree program. That's really cool. Yeah, so so basically students get to learn the concepts of, uh, you know, uh, the foundational concepts of sustainability, uh, design for innovation and all these things from us uh, while they study the traditional management courses like finance, accounting, marketing, uh, uh, HR and other courses from our partner university in Switzerland. I love it. So one last question for you. I heard your last name is really interesting, Casey. Do you want to tell me where it comes from and why it's so cool? <laughs> uh, Casey stands for Khatri Chetri. Uh, it's a it's a long um, um, <laughs> it's a long last name, but it it denotes uh, a certain uh, uh, stage uh, in a, in the Hindu caste system. Um, uh, so um, I think, you know, my, my grandfather, until my grandfather, he used to write uh, Khatri Chetri, the pool name, but I think my father started writing it as Casey. I don't know why, probably he didn't want to denote where we belong to or, uh, or anything like that. He used to joke around uh, with the last name quite a lot. So, um, so since then, uh, you know, my, my last name has been Casey and it's quite tough, you know, sometimes. Uh, some of the systems that have been designed, uh, they don't take two-digit last name. I don't um, think Yeah, so sometimes I had to add additional space in between. Sometimes I put a dot in between. So there is no consistency on what my last name is. Sometimes it is K space C. Sometimes it is K dot C dot. So it's, it's, it's interesting. And I get asked this question uh, quite a lot, especially here. So people are always confused. Actually, I have quite a lot of documents but people have written my last name as first name and first name as last name. Or sometimes they, they, they would just leave one, uh, one, uh, one thing blank because they're confused what it is. They just don't know what to do. Okay, look, that's really great. I really appreciate your time doing this today. And I just wanted to say thank you. And hopefully we'll be able to catch up over time, um, particularly as this course gets launched, and try to find out like, what the impact has been on those students as well. So thank you again. Yeah, so sure. Much. Yeah, th thank you, Mike.